Um, I've been away too long because I got teary-eyed almost. I got teary-eyed in Sunday school talking about the gospel. I got teary-eyed during worship, teary-eyed during that. So that's a good sign I've been away from the body of Christ for too long. I've missed three weeks, three Sundays. I don't know uh, that I've ever missed three Sundays in a row. Um, To my knowledge, I think I've missed two. Corky would know. He's like, no, you haven't because he he keeps track of these things for some reason. But um, so this is a, a new experience for me, but it's really great for me to be back and to be back with you. Not just to be back, but to be back specifically with New Covenant Church family. I uh, thank you for, for all your prayers. As you know, I was out because of COVID and then later for a vacation. Um, but uh, God answers prayers, and I think I'm pretty much back near 100%. And I thank God for a relatively mild case of that. I don't take health for granted. I see it as a blessing for God. I also appreciate and want to publicly thank uh, Pastor Kirk and Corky for filling the pulpit in my absence. A lot of that was last minute, like I think the day before um, notice, and they came up here and really delivered. I appreciate that message of forgiveness and love. Um, we can love because God first loved us, and we can forgive because God first forgave us. And Corky delivered uh, one message, had to split it up in two because he was called up here twice in 1 Corinthians. And it was a powerful warning for us to take heed in our service to God. So you were in good hands, and I'm very grateful for God's pulpit supply uh, in my absence. We are, as you probably know, back to 2 Corinthians. And we have been examining Paul's teaching regarding the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And what we're finding in this letter is that it is very important for the, uh, the Apostle Paul to communicate to the church the differences in God's design of these two covenants. So it's important for the churches to know, for our church to know, for believers to know... The difference between the glory, the magnitude of these two God-instituted covenants, because if they're misunderstood, it actually can lead us away from God as opposed to lead us to the true God. But once it's understood clearly and properly, it can not only lead us to God, but give us a, a, a more vibrant vision of who he is and how we relate to him. And I was going to review a few of the points, but I think for time's sake, I'm going to skip that um, and just say that Paul's basic message is that the old covenant had its place and it was glorious for how God intended it to be. Absolutely pivotal in the plan of redemption. However, in the in the coming or advent of the new covenant, the new covenant is so glorious That if you hold the two covenants up together, it's as if the old covenant didn't have any glory at all. And it's not because it didn't have any glory. It did. But it's because of the the, the magnitude of the glory of the new covenant. And a few things that he pointed out was um, the old covenant was a covenant that revealed condemnation as opposed to the new covenant that revealed or brought 
righteousness, and then in the Old Covenant you had uh, death with the letter of the law, and the New Covenant you had the spirit of the law that brought life. In the last sermon, we examined the difference between uh, Paul's uh, metaphors or analogies in life, living life veiled to God, as opposed to living life unveiled. And the idea between that is that being veiled is symbolic of having a hard, obstinate heart, a disobedient heart to God. And our own heart uh, prevents us for seeing, from seeing God for who He really is. And He's a good God. He's a glorious God. And that's what we're going to develop this morning. But when we turn to the Lord, He removes that veil, of course, through forgiveness. He removes the veil... And God is no longer obscured with all of our baggage, but we can see him for who he really is. Now, that's a huge difference in the way that people can live. So I I want to develop that, take a deeper look at that and notice three things. And I am going to go ahead and in just a second and read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18 again. So we're going to dive a little deeper into, well, what does it mean to be unveiled? What exactly is the benefit? What is Paul so excited about when he talks about uh, what it means to turn to Christ and how Christ takes that veil off of us? And I want to take a deeper look in, in, in three aspects or take note of three things. First, basically the benefit, uh, the greater benefit of the new covenant over the old covenant, over the old covenant. And then I want to note how uh, the ability to see God unobscured literally changes us. It has an effect on how we think, how we live, how we feel. And then thirdly, I want us to see how gazing at the glory of God actually emboldens us in our Christian living. It makes us more courageous. It makes us more daring in how we live our lives before Christ. All of that because the veil has been removed and we can see or gaze at the glory of God. So let's listen to the apostles' words in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 18. He's talking about his ministry. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. And and for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, 
the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So I love all of these verses, but I want to primarily park on verse 18 and un- unfold that, if you will. So let me read it one more time. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So obviously Paul, is he's inspired, he's encouraged, he's pumped, we might say. He's pumped about this idea of removing the veil and the effect. So what's so great about beholding the glory of the Lord? I mean, what is the glory of the Lord that is that is found in the new covenant in a way that is that far surpasses and so much better than what was revealed in the old covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, glory, the word glory has to do with with a heaviness or a weightiness, not not like necessarily in pounds, but in in presence, in 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 worth in how something is presented. In other words, there's there's an aura, if you will, of of importance and of greatness. But literally it has to do with heaviness and weight. In other words, when that presence, if you are in the presence of something that is glorious, you'll feel it. You'll know it. Uh, experientially and, and intellectually. So it was used in everyday um, speech in the Old Testament to express a person's worth. It's a glorious, so you could have a little bit of glory and a lot of glory in your worth as a being or a person in a material sense, but also just in your honor, in your splendor. So it means probably what you were thinking it means. In the New Testament, the word, the Greek word doxa has to, uh, carries along with that same idea. But it has to do with the quality, again, of being splendid, uh, remarkable in appearance. So when we think of Paul being excited about this glory, he's, he's talking about this heaviness of worth, this weightiness, this beauty, this splendor. That's what we're seeing. That's what we're gazing at. That's what changes us. So just to make sure we properly understand this, because it's so important and I want to kind of build a, fa- a proper foundation so we can appreciate and be excited with Paul over this ministry of the new covenant. Here's how it's used in the New Testament. Jesus used it in Matthew six twenty-eight through 29. And he says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon... In all his glory, there's the word, in all of Solomon's glory was not arrayed like one of these. So there's how it was used in everyday speech. First Peter um, one twenty four uses it in a similar way. He's actually quoting Isaiah. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower Falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
So we're talking about something that is obviously of great worth. There's a heaviness there. But it's also a beautiful in appearance. It's beautiful for what it is in and of itself and what it has to offer, what it brings to the table, just in its essence or its very being. Beautiful, impressive, splendid in appearance. So that's what we want to be thinking about when we try to apply this passage to our own Christian life. As far as what does it mean that the veil has been removed and therefore now I can gaze and see God unobscured. Well, we see that God is, is beautiful in his weight, in his worth, and in his appearance. And we want to be able to, full the, to, to feel the full impact of that ministry. I think Paul wants us not just to know it, but to feel it like he does. Because it's impacted his life. So let's lay a, a proper foundation for this. Make sure we, we do it right. Make sure we understand perhaps how glorious God is. Because I could say that and then move on to the next verses. But what is beauty? What is splendor according to mankind? What do you think about when you think of something that's not just okay or mediocre, but I mean absolutely awesome? I mean jaw-dropping inspiringly splendid and beautiful. And in order for us to understand true beauty, true glory, I want to say that without the existence of God, there really is no true glory or true beauty. What do I mean by that? If God doesn't exist, in other words, if there's not a higher standard of language, of defining beauty, then we are left to ourselves and our own minds and our own opinions regarding what really is beautiful and what isn't. If there's a higher mind that kind of trumps all of ours and and sets the boundaries and the rules or the definitions then we can all agree on something, whether it is truly glorious or beautiful or not. But if there isn't a higher being, or if God doesn't exist, then our idea of beauty really just kind of dissolves into our own little opinions. And we see this in our culture. So, uh, I like that could just as easily be understood as I don't like that. As you just have two different opinions about the same object or the same topic if it's not an expression of God, if it hasn't been defined or spoken by God. It's subjective only. You hear the terminology subjective versus objective. In other words, the worth that's ascribed to this, the impressiveness comes from the subject that's viewing it as opposed to the object in and of itself being beautiful and glorious, whether the subject agrees with it or not. So that's the difference we're talking about. That's how important it is in order for us to really understand this, uh, the, the, the incredible grace and mercy of God in this ministry of the new covenant. Now, this gets interesting 
as you well know, in our culture. Because when it comes, say, to beauty, to art, um, to glory, not everybody in our world or, or even in our community agrees that there is a God. And yet, when it comes to appreciating beauty, you know what our society really wants? We want to all agree on what's beautiful and what's not beautiful. Like, people, even people that don't believe in the objective or God's existence, want us all to agree with them as they gaze at an object or a thing or a happening that, oh yes, unequivocally, I agree with you. That is a sight to behold. So, we, we want something... There's something about us that wants our idea of beauty to be higher than just our preference. We don't want it to be just our preference, even though that without God, it is just our preference. But that's not what we want, because there's things around us that we think, in our opinion, are so glorious that how could anybody ever doubt or disagree with my assessment of beauty or glory? Could we, we have this hunger pain in us that that wants everybody to join in in our great experience. I would argue that hunger pain or that craving for everybody to be able to agree with something that's beautiful is because we are created in the image of God. It's a little inkling. It's a hungering uh, there for us because of the imprint of God on us. So here's how um, John Piper might understand this. Suppose that you were uh, standing by the Grand Canyon at sunset with two other people. You become deeply moved and utter the words, That is beautiful. This is glorious. Now the person beside you says, Beautiful? Uh, That's just a big ugly ditch. And then the third person says, yeah, I, I, I get what both of you are saying. I, I think those are equally valid statements. So, and, and it's true that unless there's a higher aesthetic court, the judge, the rules of what truly is beautiful, what truly is glorious, um, unless there's a higher aesthetic court of appeal than man, those two judgments are equally valid. But even people who say that they believe in such humanistic relativism don't like it when their own judgments about truth and beauty are treated as mere personal idiosyncrasies. And the reason for this, I think, is that there's in every person a God-given sense that beauty must have meaning that's larger and more permanent than personal quirks. This urge for ultimate meaning is evidence of our creation in the image of God. So that's why I want to dive, dive deeper because I think by diving deeper and, and really trying to understand what beauty and glory is to begin with, it will help us to appreciate what we have in Christ, what God has done for us through the freeing gospel. So with this in mind, what does it mean to behold the beauty of God, which is what Paul is teaching us in this passage? It means that Beauty has to be understood in relation to God. It's not our quirk. It's not our idiosyncrasy. Uh, God created all things, and that's how beauty has to even be understood as we look at things. 
He created everything that we see. He created it with a shape, with its form, with its color, with its texture, with its shoes, with its essence. I mean, we can look at, just look around this room and out these windows, and different things that we see have different effects on us. Uh, this morning, I was listening to all and, and watching the, the little kids and the babies and the toddlers just walk around the church. Uh, Ray, Raylan, he owns this place already. He owns it. He just ditched his parents at the door. He was, I got people to see and places to go. And, and as I look at how people interact, it's like I can look out these windows and see trees. It has a different effect on me. And it's meant to. A chair, a comfortable place to seat, sit. That's a blessing from God to you. Your bottom isn't sore, hopefully. So all of these things, the textures, the shape, it's, it's God's design. And we have to understand beauty, worth, weight, glory, preciousness, value through the presence and the essence and the origin of God. So this means that a, a beautiful God created all these beautiful things. Beautiful God. And yes, he gives rules and boundaries to keep his beautiful things beautiful. You ever heard that before? You better say yes, because I, I preached it for like six different sermons. That was my theme of Psalm 100. God gives us rules and boundaries. Why? To ruin our lives. No. To keep his beautiful things absolutely precious and beautiful. Marriage has rules to it. Love has rules. Why? To keep it precious. To keep it beautiful. So God is beautiful. And yet we can't say, I can't say, look, I can't point to something and say, look how beautiful he is. Don't you all agree with me how beautiful the being or the essence or the person of God is because God is spirit. So we can't see him, God the Father, in that way and say that's that's God. Because there's no there's no really earthly pattern other than, of course, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who's the exact representation, but it's a different manifestation. It's God in the flesh, human flesh. So there's no earthly pattern other than Christ. But, but we can say when it comes to beholding the beauty of God, uh, that beauty, if it's true beauty, beauty is what God is. God is beautiful. Scripture teaches us that. So beauty is what God is. So I think that's the, the, the most powerful place to start in understanding what it even means to behold God. Beauty is what God is. God is splendid. He's majestic. He's glorious. Now, here's where it starts to open up. Because when we think about the being of God and the attributes of God, what makes God who he is. So when we think about uh, his justice, his power, his wisdom... His omnipresence, he can be everywhere at one time. As we think about uh, his kindness, as we think about his forgiveness, as we think about his wrath. Th- those aren't just neutral attributes. We, we can think of it as not just love, but it's a beautiful love. 
if we think about God's kindness, it, it, it's a splendid kindness. His justice or his wrath against sin, it, it's beautiful, it's majestic. So in other words, the, the attributes that God possesses, they don't have to be beautiful. They don't have to be good. Well, what? where are you going with that? Well, Satan has quite a bit of power, right? That's one of the attributes of Satan. And Scripture even says, beware, watch out. Don't, don't try to overpower him. It's only in the name of Christ. Don't do it on your own. You'll be overpowered and overcome. So there's an attribute that Satan has, but it's not a beautiful attribute. It's an ugly, evil thing. He uses it for evil. So we think about God's attributes and God's goodness and power and justice. Think about it in terms of being beautiful and glorious. In other words, there's that weightiness, moral content of goodness to it. Everything he does is beautiful and it's good to its core. And because God is good, when we gaze upon him, we receive that. And our eyes are open to all of his intentions for us and this world. We see things in a different way, veiled versus unveiled. When when you come to Christ, you're you're not just saved. You're not just forgiven. In in a sense, Paul says in Ephesians, open the eyes of my heart. You're given new eyes to see everything that God created. Not just yourself, but your neighbor, your dog, your, your house. The row, everything now has new meaning and purpose. And because God is so good, it's, it's beautiful. It's morally pleasing. So to be in his presence. I mean, if you just think of the warmest, most delightful experience. It's beyond looking at the Grand Canyon. Because that's visually, that's aesthetic, and it, and it ministers to us because we're creating the image of God, I would say, I would argue. But now we're, we're talking about the whole package here. Just absolute trust, love, beautiful love, and warmth, and goodness that God wants for us, whom he has redeemed. So, so why do we find ourselves booking uh, taking valuable time out of her calendars every year to often go on vacations. Uh, it's to feel refreshed. It's to feel rejuvenated. It's to get out of the everyday grind, the daily grind. And where do we often go? We go to places that are visually beautiful. Why? Because they minister to us. We go to the Grand Canyon. We want to see something bigger than we are to forget or temporarily put on hold some of the responsibilities in our lives. So we flock to the Grand Canyon. We flock to the snow-capped mountains. We flock to the beaches and the white sand, and the power of the ocean and the depth and the colors and the textures and all of these things everywhere. People all over the world, if they can afford it, want to do this thing. And if they can't, they go there in their mind, read a book, and I'll visit that beautiful place in my mind. We want to behold something. It's that inkling. It's that craving. We want to see something big, powerful, and beautiful because it does something to us. And we got the money to prove it. How much did you pay for your rental beach house or were traveling to places? 
It's worth a lot, isn't it? Now, I think it would be safe maybe at this point to say we crave visions of glory. We, we, we crave, we want to see, to be a part of, not just see a picture or a postcard. I want to be a part of that. I want to see it with my own eyes so I can really digest it and think it through. I believe that what Paul's talking about here in gazing at the beauty of the Lord, he's talking about a human craving that can only be quenched. A human craving for goodness, for beauty, for delight, for pleasure that can only be quenched by gazing at the one and only true God. And we find ourselves searching the world far and wide for substitutes. But we want it. We all want it. But we settle for substitutes because we're veiled. Because our hardness of heart sent us in this direction, promising us some kind of deliverance, some kind of freedom, some kind of experience that we crave, and yet leaves us looking for more. And the idea here is that under the ministry of the new covenant, it's so glorious what God has done. Because now through his word, through his spirit, through the body of Christ, through all of his provisions and means, we can begin to see God for who he really is. And when you do that, your life is changed. If, if our lives are not changed, it's because we're not seeing God for who he really is. You think about the worship songs that we sang this morning. That's to God. That we need a vision of. If we, we're, we're not going to run to God if we don't think he's going to help us. If we don't think that, he, that he's good. So if we're not running to God. If we're not leaning on God. If we're not trusting to God. Our belief system and our vision of him is often some kind of way. Because when we see him for who he really is. That's all we'll want to do. Is more and more and more of God. And I can't get close enough. So once we get God in our sight. We don't want to go back to the substitutes that failed us. And yet in this passage, Paul also reminds us of our problem. He reminds us of our problem of our sinful heart. And here's the thing. In order to see this, in order to get what the, our hearts crave. Isn't it interesting that our hearts crave God, but yet that same heart rejects him? Like fights and does everything to reject him. So we have this problem because of our sin nature. And either we need to have come up with the power that we didn't have previously to overcome this problem so that we can remove the obstacles of our sin and become perfect and gaze at the glory of God. Or something bigger than we are needs to come to our rescue and enable us to overcome it. So we have this problem as humanity. See, we, we have not... Our problem is we have not gazed at God and given him the tremendous worth that he deserves. I mean, if he's a glorious, if he's that big, if he's that weighty, if he's that heavy and that's good, then obviously what would be taking place down here is what's taking place in heaven. What's happening in heaven as I speak? The people in heaven are bowing down before the glorious God. Noah's passage, holy, 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 that's who God is. What happens when you see God? It's so interesting. 
the depictions of, that Scripture gives us from a biblical perception as opposed to what we hear in the world as in terms of what should happen when you actually get a true glimpse of God. In Scripture, you get a true glimpse of how pure and holy and morally good He is. And what does it do but make us feel, woe is me. That's the proper effect. When we see His beauty, woe is me. But then he offers Christ so that we can gaze at him properly. You know, I like the verse, and Corky took us through Habakkuk 1.13. And, and Habakkuk, uh, the prophet, he's having a terrible time because he's, he's scratching his head. And he's like, okay, God, yeah, we, we, we misbehave. But why would you call on a pagan nation that even misbehaves more than we do to serve as our judge and our punisher and hold the, the fly swatter or the spanky strap. I mean, there's something wrong with this. In verse 113, um, he's talking to God and he says, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He's acknowledging this must do something to you, God, because you're so holy and great and, and pure. Uh, there's got to be something wrong with this picture. He's appealing to God's own goodness. God prefers to look at beautiful things. He prefers to look at pure things. So, we, we know this. There's a, there's a real beauty. There's a true beauty. There is a differentiation between what's what's good and what's evil, what's beautiful and what's ugly. You know, if I, if I want to impress my wife, I'm not going to bring her a vase full of pig slop. I'm going to bring her a vase full of flowers. There's a difference, right? It's not relative. It's not idiosyncratic. In real life, there's an objective difference. One of them is pleasing to the eye and smells good and would probably might woe her a little bit. And if I give her the pig slop, ah, probably not a good thing to do. We, we know these things. We, we know uh, you, you run away from skunks. You know, it, it has a different effect on us. It's a yucky smell. And it gets on you and it gets in your nose and then you smell it for a long, long time. There's objective truths. And the objective truth is uh, skunks absolutely stink to the high heavens. So these things, these differences, help us to understand what Paul's talking about when it comes to beholding the glory of God and how much he's worth. Now here are Paul's word in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 10. See, unless we change ourselves... Uh, into something that's pleasing to God or somebody else does it for us, then we remain miserably in want of His glory. And that's a part of our punishment. So Paul says, Now when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, which is what? Away 
from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You see what God is after? He, he just simply wants to be acknowledged for who He really is. He is spectacular. And to not see him in that way and to not treat him in that way is worthy of eternal punishment. And the punishment is that you'll never get to see him in that way. And you'll all, you live eternally falling short and falling short and falling short. See, a relationship with God is not that cold submission of obedience. Just do what I say. It is that God wants to be related to. He wants to be marveled at. Because he really is worthy of that kind of treatment and love. I mean, if you just summarize, he said, you just take all of humanity and all the gray nuances about goodness and morality and summarize it, love God. That's the first thing. Just love him. Well, that's not a cold obedience. That's, man, I, I see you. For, I want to be with you. I want to be around you. So... What do we do? We follow Paul's teaching to find the depth and the meaning of the new covenant. And that is, he says, turn to the Lord. You crave goodness. You crave beauty. You crave God in essence. Turn to him. That's the remedy. That's the answer. Turn to the Lord and then the veil is removed. Turn to the Lord and then forgiveness of sin comes, but also empowerment to obey God and those who turn to the Lord are given the spirit of life. This leads to a second observation. So to read verse 18 again, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In Romans 8, 29 uh, Paul reveals what God is up to. And one of those things in calling people to himself is that we are called to and predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what God is up to. It's, it's a new paradigm, if you will, of life. He is doing things in our lives to make us look more like Christ in our character, in our inner man, Romans 8, 29. Now, by our nature, we're designed, we're created to be creatures that worship God, that love God, that adore God, that marvel at God. And because of that, our tendency is the things that we marvel at the most, that's in essence what we want to be like the most. So the, the objects that we worship, that we admire, we in some shape or form wind up becoming like them, emulating them. And so the more we gaze at Christ, then the more we will become like Christ. And the more we gaze at Christ and we understand God through Christ, through the gospel, then we see a God who loves us so dearly. We see a God who, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, that took the penalty for our sins. It's, it's that mercy and grace. Undeserved. And, and then the God in his radiant power walked out of the tomb. A risen Lord. 
It changes us to be more like Christ. We want to do that, not because it's laborious, but because we admire Him. It is a discipline, yes, but it's a discipline that should have great delight if you understand God for who He is. And then lastly, and I close with this, uh, the New Covenant gives us this, what Paul calls a bold hope. You know, so you have your fonts, and one of them is bold to get your attention. Verse 11, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So that's one of the ways that it changes us as we gaze at the glory of God. It causes us to conform to the image of Christ. And one of the attributes that will come alive in us is this new boldness, this new uh, courageous way of living and hoping in this beautiful God that now we see. Because we gaze at this freedom of spirit. So as we gaze at God, we get to know the attributes of God begin to rub off on us, if you will. And we become more like Christ. And one of that, Christ was bold. Christ was, was courageous. He stood against every earthly power there was to stand against. Now, he was mocked. He was ridiculed. Now, he withheld. He was self-controlled. He was incredible. He put himself in incredibly dangerous positions, did he not? I mean, he walked through gauntlets. Christ was one courageous, bold individual. And as we look at him, we will become like that in our Christian life. Sin has been dealt with. Forgiven has, forgiveness has been given under the ministry of the new covenant. So you see, it changes us. It changes everything about us, the way we look at everything. Where we land when different things come our way in life. It changes our outlook. Gazing at the beauty of God changes our outlook forever. So on my computer, I have Microsoft Outlook. I use it. And what it does is it enables you to organize. It enables you to plan. And you have certain events. You can even put the important events. You can make those bold. And you can attribute different colors to them so you won't miss them. There's different things. You have important events in your life. You can see the calendar. You can see what's to come. You can see what you have to prepare for, what you have to do. And in the same way, as we turn to the Lord and we behold the beauty of God, we have a different outlook. Now we see our lives through the beauty of God. And so we know what to prepare for. We know what's coming. We know what we have to do to live before the face of God for our good and His glory. Let me close with an illustration, a uh, very present illustration what, of what I consider bold, courageous living. What Paul's talking about here. And this is a person um, of what, say, of what bold hope might look like today. So this, let me read you a quote, and then I'll develop it throughout the illustration. So this person says this. I want to be that way. Even when I am in the middle 
of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end. I want to be the bird that sings in anticipation of the good things that I trust are coming. So those are words spoken by now. I think she's 30. She's a young lady. Her name is Jane Marzuski. And her stage name is Nightbird. And I know that some of you have heard of Nightbird, a 30-year-old young lady who has uh, been dying off and on with cancer. And I say dying off and on because she'd be diagnosed, she'd be given very little chance that she's going to live. I mean, eaten up with cancer, but then revive and then be diagnosed again. And so it's, it's this off and on battle. This is present. This is real life. She's still with us to this day. Um, she, she's known for her sincerity, her, her words, and her ministry of music is very authentic because her life is authentic. She has real hard things that she's had to deal with, and it comes out in her character and her artistic, her beauty that she presents to the world. She's a believer. And um, she graduated from Liberty University. She was talented with music. She was encouraged to go into music as a ministry and as a career, which she did. At one point, she gave it up because, I, I, think, I believe, because she had kind of gotten off track. And, and she said, no, this is actually not causing me to love God more. So she gave it up, but then she came back to it. So as you can imagine, her life has been one of many, many struggles. Uh, She says, I have had cancer three times now. I have barely passed 30. And according to um, RNS Religious News Service, her second diagnosis was, was with innumerable tumors in her lungs, lymph nodes, liver, ribs, spine, came two years later. And then during what she described... Uh, as an even darker time. Doctors told her she had six months to live. Her husband of five years told her he was leaving her. Her faith briefly wavered until she said on the podcast that she made peace with my life and my story looking differently than what I would have written. So the reason I know this, the reason some of you guys probably know this, is that she came to... uh, Fame, or at least momentarily fame, because she was on Americans Got, America's Got Talent. So she comes on this show, and you've, maybe you've seen it. She's, she's frail-looking. She's obviously uh, frail-looking. She had I, I watch it. She had uh, not a lot of hair on her head. Um, but she had this very bubbly, vibrant personality. And so the judges began to ask her about her life. They had no idea what she was dealing with, and she begins to tell them about her life and she openly shares about her cancer and then I quote again RNS she described her song on the show as the story of the last year of my life including a cancer diagnosis with a two percent chance of survival and she said it's two percent I know it doesn't sound like much but two percent is two percent so you get this on the here's this little firecracker of a girl uh, on this show and, and you immediately see that her worldview is bigger than this one little event. Her worldview is way bigger than her suffering. There's some, you, you just know there's something to her. So she sings. Uh, of course, now everybody knows she has cancer. 
she sings and everybody is mesmerized. I mean, the judges are, these are secular people. They are mesmerized by this. Some of the judges are in tears as she's singing her song. And the lyrics to the song she sang in that performance were, It's okay. Uh, That's the name of, I guess, the song. Um, And it carries the assurance of, It's okay if you're lost. We're all a little lost. And it's, it's all right. Because of God. So you see this big worldview, this story. And then she said to the applause and affirmation of everybody on the show and from the judges, it's important that everyone knows that I'm so much more than the bad things that happen to me. She refuses to be defined in any other way but how God defines her, how Scripture defines her, even her suffering. And God has a lot to say about this. So then... um, uh, RNS, the news quotes her again, her um, stage name Nightbird, carries a message of hope. And she told the journal that she took the name from a recurring dream she had about birds singing in the darkness. And after several nights of the same dream, she woke in the middle of the night to hear birds singing outside her window as if it were already morning. And then let me, as I close, requote what I opened with. I want to be that way. Even when I am in the middle of a dark time and there are no signs that it will end, I want to be the bird that sings in anticipation of the good things that I trust are coming. That is a bold hope. From a modern day believer. An anticipation in the goodness of God. A God who can't lie. By the very essence of his character. I would venture to say. That in all of her soul's questioning. In all of her, 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 her searching. That she has been beholding and gazing at the beauty of God. How else can you land in this place? So trust, turn to the Lord, Paul says. Turn to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Behold his beauty. Welcome the change that God will bring into your life and venture into each day with not just a hope, not a weak hope, but a bold hope in the promises of God and the beauty of of his being. May God bless the preaching of his word.